find yourself thinking that you're not good enough or that you're not lovable? Many people hide a dark side that they feel that if others knew their secrets, it would be detrimental to their relationships. It doesn't need to be that way at all. This is where words can't reach. Shedding light on our dark side with your host, Dr. Madeline DeLittle can help. It's time for a frank and open discussion about the things that are bothering us and say what needs to be said. Dr. DeLittle and her guest experts are here to help you understand and provide advice. Now, here is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Hello and welcome to Voice America Empowerment Channel. My name is Dr. Madeline DeLittle and you're listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. And today's topic is uh, entitled The Dark Side of Addiction, Shame, Trauma, Pain and Suffering. And my guest today is uh, an expert on this topic and I'd like to welcome Teresa, Teresa McClellan. Hello, Teresa. Are you there? Hi, I'm here. Hi. Wonderful. Um, before we begin, Teresa, I just want to tell talk, tell the listeners about uh, who you are, actually. Okay. All right. So, um, you're a registered clinical counselor with a background in, in mental health and addictions and family systems, psychology, spirituality, criminology, and philosophy. That's a lot. <laughs> yes. So, you've, you've synthesized all of that into your work that you do today. Yeah. And you graduated from the Adler Adler University here in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. And you got a master's master's in uh, in counseling psych, and, and you're now a therapist, are you, Teresa? Yes. Okay. So, what 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 brought you into this area of work around addictions and shame? Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I started in the field about 20 years ago, and mostly because of my own personal experience. So I started in a recovery house setting because of my own personal recovery, my own experience with family and addiction. And so it really started from that very base, um, very simple base. And from there, I did my education, learning about substance use counseling. I went and got my bachelor's degree and master's degree after that. So, yeah, so it really was this call to help other people because my own I've witnessed so much suffering around me and growing up in it that I felt like I had something to give because I got out wow so you yourself had an issue with addictions and you you were like a consumer of this you're at the other side of it and came through (laughs) I am on all sides of this (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's why this is such a a passion for you Um, yes yeah so that you because you you've walked this it's not just simply an, um, um, an academic thing you've walked it yeah walked it and witnessed it so really in the trenches of my own as well as with family and with clients friends like just in society I feel like I'm walking in it with people Mm. Mm. okay so um you've been how long have you been training in to do this work for and to help other people come through addictions um I probably for 20 years 
So I started initially, I've done, I've done a lot of Satir training, so systems theory, family therapy, which is a real sort of holistic, systemic view of problems and understanding a lot more of what's happening within the person and relationships. So that was kind of the foundation to how I understood addictions. So the work I did was in addictions. The training I've done was in substance use counseling and then systems training. I've taken a lot of criminology courses and therefore I've worked in the jails. So a lot of my work really evolved over the years, but I continued to see these patterns of what was happening within people and how they came to use substances or whatever behaviors became a problem. So can you just use the word satir? Can you, for the listener's sake, just say a little bit about what that means, satir system system theory? Is that what you called it? <laughs> yes. So Virginia Satir was a social worker, um, originally a teacher. And so her view of people and understanding people and how people can change um, became this... Um, she had a few different stages of her theory, but basically the Satir model is from, from her observations and clinical practice in between the 60s and she passed away in 88. So it's been continued on since then by quite a few different people around the world. So a, a family therapy model in terms of working with families, and yet I, I generally work with individuals, and so it's much more of a systems understanding of the individual person and their relationships so how it so how it impacts everyone else in the family it sort of like it, it shifts everyone else so you so you work with the individual but you always have the family in mind is that what you're saying yeah you don't have, and you, you don't have the family and they're all in the room at the same time no i don't so recognizing how the family and the family life has impacted the individual and then how the individual shifting and changing or behaving affects the family. So it kind of goes both ways. I, wow. Okay. I want to know more about that. But, but I, wonder, I want to know more about addiction itself. Like addiction isn't just alcohol. It's no. all sorts of things. And now we've got video games and yeah. all sorts. You know, tell me about just sort of the what is addiction? Well, that's quite a loaded question. There's a there's a lot of different views and uh, approaches and definitions of addiction, and so part of how I understand it is there's a whole bunch of different behaviors, like you were just saying, that when repeated over time can sometimes have consequences. So. Um, many of the sort of disease model approach recognize it as this shift and change in brain function and structure after having used substances or having repeatedly um, practiced certain behaviors, whether it's gambling, sex, internet addiction, food. There's a whole bunch of different ways people can become addicted. Um, and so when you do anything like that over time, it changes the brain, it changes the function, right? Those particular neuropathways strengthen and it becomes more and more automatic. So that's sort of one way of looking at it is brain change. And so it affects certain areas of the brain. There's been lots of research done in that. And yet when I look at addiction, it really is about why. Why are people being pulled into these behaviors? Why are they using them in the first place? And then how do they get entrenched when other people do the same behaviors and don't get entrenched? 
Are, are the two mutually exclusive? No, no, because part of it is, um, when I look at systems, right, part of it is, is it's important to understand what's happening after people use these certain behaviors and get entrenched in them, get stuck or caught in them, and aren't able to get out. Understanding the brain function, understanding that sort of physiological aspect to it is really important to help people function and cope with stuff afterwards. And yet when I look at um, what's happening before, in terms of relapse prevention, helping people stop using the behavior, if you don't understand why they're doing it in the first place, chances are they're going to return to it or something else afterwards if whatever's underlying or there even before doesn't get resolved. It feels, I, I, I just to add to this, something about um, the reward system of the brain. Yes. Um, uh, this is going back a while, but it, it feels, <laughs> in my, my schooling, but it feels like it's that constant seeking for, for reward. Yes. And, and it sort of, it actually triggers the body to, to want more, want more, want more. Yes. And, and so, and. But there's still the point is, why do you want more? Why, why does yes. it even begin in the first Yes, because okay. there is most, I mean, food, sex, drugs, alcohol, there is a pleasure, that euphoria that comes with. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And yet not everybody needs more. So it's not the substance or the behavior in itself. It really is about why are some people needing more? And it, it is that underlying need. It's like this insatiable need that creates craving and urges on top of what's happening in the brain. So there's the underlying stuff and then what happens in the brain. So there's multiple different aspects of how addiction develops. So Teresa, do you, do you work with any, all addictions? Like, like could you work with somebody with a, with a pornography addiction, for example? Is it the same principles that you would use? I have, yes. So some of the agencies in which I work with are fairly limited in what they accept and what kinds of behaviors they deal with in terms of training. Um, When I look at, in some of the research that I've done in the teaching that I've done, it really is looking at what's underlying has been quite common across the board in terms of addictions. And so that's usually some kind of pain, some kind of suffering, some kind of hurt or trauma, some kind of disconnection that Mm -hmm. is being sought out in all kinds of different forms of behavior. I would love to hear from the listeners uh, on my email or your email, which is on the site, but I'll give it at the end of the show, around their their stories of addiction and, and uh, hopefully they will contact us and, and perhaps come on the show at a later date because this is this is very prevalent and I, I, I don't know what percentages are. Do you have do you have numbers around this, around what, you know? <laughs> well, it depends on how, I think that's part of it, right, is that most people understand addiction is this big, bad problem like the opiate crisis right now, right? Those people that have addictions are really different than other people who just, you know, work too much and don't spend time with their family or, you know, that eat too much and gain excessive weight or, you know, there's so many different ways that which people fall into the same category but don't necessarily recognize it as addiction because they're not homeless or they're not destitute or they're not broke. They're not dying. Yeah. 
So it's it's not recognized as the same because the same desperation on the exterior is not as visible. But, but on the, the interior, inside, yeah, it's the same. Yeah, we don't talk about the eating crisis or the no. No. Okay. Okay. So, um, I work mostly with children, as as you you know, and and mm-hmm. um, uh, I have little ones, sort of nine or ten, that us are, are addicted to video games yes. and or just screen time, YouTube. Yeah. And they cannot leave the house. Yeah. And is that a specialized sort of area that because it's becoming more and more prevalent? Yeah, and so. Uh, because it's exposure, right? So when you look at all of the different behaviors that can become addictions, it really is about exposure, right? So people with sex addictions typically have been exposed to pornography quite early, have um, found masturbation, excessive masturbation quite early. You know, substances, the earlier you end up using substances or exposed to substances, the higher level of addiction that there is. Mm -hmm. So when we look at gaming and internet use, right? Our kids are being exposed to technology like really, really young. We're giving it to them. Yeah. We're giving them in in the strollers, sitting in the stroller with their little video game. So as parents, we give it to them to keep them busy, keep them occupied, keep them calm, right? So we're helping them learn how to turn to something outside to manage their inside world. Oh, that's scary. Okay, yeah. I want you want I want you to say that again because that's. <laughs> I want you to say that again. It's always the trick of repeating myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I said about um, we, you said something about like we're giving external things for them to learn to calm down. That, we teach so they them. Can't, that, right. Yeah, we teach so, them. So they so, don't learn uh, how to regulate themselves. They can only, de- they're dependent upon. Yes. Ex- yes. Right, and so be- the children that have learned how to regulate their emotions, how to turn to themselves, how to share what's going on inside, the families that develop that attachment, connection, belonging, acceptance, right? Those kids don't have that inner need to turn to something outside of themselves. It doesn't mean that they don't use those same kinds of things, but they generally have limits. They have self-understanding. They have other things that help them from going as far as other people go. Well, I hope the parents out out in uh, the listener world uh, are are taking this in because it it is troubling for me um, when I when I see this going on for for the children and, mm-hmm. and we really haven't got to have studied this longitudinally. We don't really no. know what's going yeah. on, but we we know that to for children to be able to calm themselves or what we call regulate themselves, it really is about human you mentioned this human yeah. connection one-on-one yes. absolute um acceptance as you yeah. said yeah and somehow these machines these video games are taking the place of that yes and, and it's isolation yeah and if parents don't know how to do that how can they possibly do that with their children okay so i want to know about um 
I, mean, th- I think we've talked about how it develops. So, yeah. right. So, h- how do you um, how do you work with somebody with who comes to you in your counselling office? How do you help them to? Well, yeah. How do you work with them? So, my my first important thing to know is how is it serving them? Right? How is it a problem for them? And, you know, what have they done already to try to resolve it? So I want to understand how it serves them because that's usually, so usually there's costs and benefits to any of these behaviors, right? Which is usually how it becomes an addiction is the consequences that build. But if people continue to use any of these substances or behaviors, despite those consequences, that tells me that there's still a benefit to them. So I want to know what that benefit is, because then that becomes how we treat things, how we target things, how we understand the problem. So can you give me an example of what somebody might say about the benefits versus the cost? So uh, for many people, it is about emotions and emotion regulation, right? So um, having a drink calms them down, right? It relaxes them at the end of the night. So dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety, um, dealing with any kind of intense emotion, right? Just having any kind of depressant is going to calm them down. That's what it does. That's what alcohol does, right? Mm -hmm. It gives us that sense of peace and calm. And for some people, if they've got a little bit of stress, they have a glass of wine, it's no big deal, right? If you have chronic stress, one glass of wine is not going to do it. So you need more and more. And then your brain kicks in the reward pathways and all the other stuff happening in the brain. And... It becomes this inability to stop. And that's the key piece. Many people have a glass of wine or have a... Have a yeah. It's, it's the fact that it's not enough, so that it has to have more and more. Yeah, yeah. And that, that really, to me, indicates the level of pain inside or the level of emotion inside that they don't know how to deal with, that they're finding something externally to help them deal with it. So have you got a, a definition of addiction? So... Yes, the one the one that I use is um, Gabor Mate's definition because it, it really does seem to fit with all the things that I've come around. So basically, it's any behavior that gives you temporary pleasure or relief that you crave and then cling to despite negative consequences. So there's, again, this relief or pleasure that comes from it that becomes craving, like, I want this, I need this. Mm. So sometimes that's psychological, sometimes that's physical, right? Said, and then can you say it again, Teresa? The definition? Yeah. So any behavior that gives you temporary pleasure or relief that you crave and cling to despite negative consequences. Okay. So those negative consequences would be what? Um, they could be health consequences for some people. Um, In terms of alcohol, it becomes liver disease. Um, They can be relational consequences. If um, teens are using, it can become quite conflictual in the family. It can be um, career. People lose jobs. You know, they get kicked out of school. Um, It can be legal in terms of breaking the law. Um, So there's a whole bunch of different areas. So health, legal, social, and then internal right? There's an internal consequence. People feel incredible shame around some of the stuff they do and the problems it's causing them. 
Oh, so that could be a negative consequence, feeling ashamed of what they're doing. Absolutely. Okay, okay. Which is a wonderful segue into <laughs> <laughs> into uh, where where does shame fit into addictions? Yeah, and it it fits in afterwards because some of the stuff that people do under the influence or in desperate states of withdrawal, like there's lots of stuff that people do in those states that they would not normally do, and so either in craving withdrawal or intoxication right people become quite desperate and their natural normal inhibitions for controlling irrational impulsive and irresponsible behavior are just not existent so they do things in those states that for one it could be aggression it could be anger it could be violence it can be criminal behavior it can be saying things and doing things with loved ones that they would not normally do, whether it's stealing or fighting or lying. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And then people, because it's not who they are, feel incredible shame afterwards, guilt, remorse, and shame, which usually get entrenched in the cycle and keep behavior going because it's an awful feeling to experience. And therefore, you do more of it to 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 dumb, dumb it down or to dumb yes. it. Yes. And oh then with, withdraw from people or get rejected by people and then the isolation overwhelms them. So it becomes this ripple effect outwards. And yet shame is almost always, in my experience, it's almost always there long before people use. So it's before and after. Before, during, and after. So some... Whew. Let me, let me get this right. So shame could be there and it perhaps is the underlying cause of the addiction. And yeah. then it causes more shame. Yeah. And so then it, then it's it's more loaded on to this because of the way the family reacts and, society. and the judgments, society. Yeah. The criminal justice okay. system, health systems. It's, yeah, the way people react to the behaviors that are done within and around addiction compound the shame and addictive behaviors. Vicious cycle, isn't it? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. it is. I've heard this from uh, from other other episodes of, that we've had around this, around how it just goes round and round and round, and it's a really tough to tough to get off that hamster wheel. And yeah. And so what I want to do is when we go to break in, in a couple of minutes, I, I, after the break, I want to come back and I want you to talk about um, how we can shed light on this, how mm-hmm. we can find, how we can get off this this hamster wheel of shaming, feeling ashamed about the shame and just the whole thing just keeping going, going round and round and round. But but in the, in the, in just before the break, have you got... Even even at this point in our conversation, have you got any sort of a takeaways for our listeners? Any sort of uh, what one little piece of advice around if it's a family member or mm. if it's a, an individual with um, that's struggling and on that in that hamster wheel? 
I think it's about compassion, right? So really understanding the the suffering and the underlying stuff that brings about all these behaviors. So if we can just bring a little bit of compassion in and understanding to what else is happening instead of being so harshly judgmental and shaming, blaming about the behaviors themselves. So just teasing apart the the behavior and what people are doing and really being able to see the human being that's underneath it that's hidden behind it the wounded the wounded yeah. part yeah yeah wounded animals they lash out right mm. so wounded people do the same thing uh, and that's not easy for family members who've been so harmed no um no so it's about having compassion for themselves as well as the other person right because this is difficult for everybody involved to deal with can you say more about compassion for themselves? So recognizing, again, when we talk about systems, right? So I know many families will blame themselves, right? What have I done? What did I do? And there may be stuff that has been done, you know, in early childhood, choices along the way. I know I certainly wasn't a perfect parent. And so, you know, my kids suffered, right? And so part of it is being able to really have compassion for ourselves and what we've done in our imperfection. And, yeah, and recognizing that if we keep judging and blaming ourselves, we can't move forward. We stay stuck just as much as the other person does. So really having compassion for ourselves is recognizing our our humanness, right? And recognizing that we are imperfect and we make mistakes. So it sounds like it starts with self-compassion. Yes. Before we can offer that to a family member who has done some considerable harm to others within yeah. that context. Yeah. And um, once we've got that, then we can find it for, for that, that individual. Yeah. I do hope listeners that you're, you're taking this in and can contact us. Uh, Teresa, your email is tmmcll at telus.net. Mine is mdelittle at gmail.com so I really invite the listeners to share with us your experiences of either as a family member or as um, a person who is who has an addiction and and is aware of it and yet still can't move beyond it we'd love to hear um, your stories and uh, and we will respond accordingly So, so Teresa let's go to break and um, in, when we get back, I want to hear more about how we can shed light and, and compassion on addiction. So, okay, um, all right. Mm-hmm. So, thanks to we're listening to Teresa McClellan here on the on uh, the Empowerment Channel, speaking on the dark side of addiction and shame, trauma, pain, and suffering. And we're going to be back in just a couple of minutes to listen to how we can find compassion for those who have an addiction. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you want to know more about how to work with children and adults to transform shame, depression, loss, and anxiety, order Dr. DeLittle's book, Where Words Can't Reach, Neuroscience and the Satir Model in the Sand Tray. 
The book is available online from Dr. DeLittle's website, where words cannot reach.com. Dr. DeLittle also conducts workshops and can come to your workplace or organization. If you wish to have Dr. DeLittle come and do a two-day workshop on an introduction to neuroscience and satire in the Santray, please contact her at mdelittle at gmail.com. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to Where Words Can't Reach, shedding light on our dark side. We'd love to hear from you with any stories, suggestions, or questions by sending an email to mthelittle at gmail.com. Here again is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Welcome back to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. My guest today is Teresa McClellan, and she's been talking to us about the dark side of addiction, uh, including sh- which includes shame, trauma, pain, and suffering. And Welcome back, Teresa. Hi. Hi. Now, let's get down. Let's get down into this the shame piece and, and compassion and, uh, and where this fits into addictions. So, so part of the work that I do, I think just in general, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that this is because I've been there, I really get, like I have this visceral sense of the pain that comes with before addiction, during addiction, and after addiction, living in society with addiction, and trying to recover. I've, I've not spoken about it much because there's this huge stigma around it, and what will people think, and what will they say? They won't take me seriously, which is why I've worked so hard to get my degrees and my education. So part of that is that this visceral sense, like, I get it. Mm-hmm. So when I hear people, I can really be in the room with them, And I do really believe that that's my greatest gift of working with people is I understand darkness. I understand pain. I understand suffering. I understand shame. And I understand why people use. So you've got credibility. and, And I don't necessarily share that with clients or people I work with, but I, I do. I don't talk about it. And yet by, I listen, what are they saying, right? I listen for the pain. I hear it in their words. I hear it in what they don't say. So that space that I try to give people and really acknowledging their humanness in that there is both dark and light in everybody. And I listen for not just where they've suffered, but how they have survived. What have they done? What has kept them going? I want to know their strengths. I want to know their, their resources. And for some people, how they have survived is by using substances. So it becomes this real strength that people have sought that out to stay alive, to manage through such, for some people excruciating traumas, incredible pain, and and great disconnection and loneliness. That's an interesting idea that their addiction has kept them alive. That's a huge shift, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
It's looking sure. at the p- positive intentions, right, and really understanding the strength and benefit that when people turn to these behaviors, it gets them through when, I mean, for many people, they, they can't do it, right? Which is why people choose to end their life because they can't do it. They can't do, what What are you saying? They can't. Life. <laughs> oh, can't do life. They can't do life. They can't deal with the pain. They, they can't keep going in the face of all these judgments, of all this shame, of all these stigma. So you're able to elicit the, the, the sort of the deepest, this is this whole concept of shedding light, it's going yeah. down into the, into the darkness. Because yeah. that's not something they're going to necessarily come up initially with. They're going to no. come up with something else no. and... Some people, I have many clients that come in and they've got a sense and some people say, I think this might have something to do with what happened to me as a kid. I think this might have something to do with my relationship with my dad. You know, sometimes they have a sense of where it comes from. Other people need a lot of sort of guidance to getting a sense of understanding what it's all about. And is there a pool of um, hurt you know, a, a, a the, are there themes of hurt? There may be. <laughs> I think part of, like, it's it's been really important to me to, to not make any sort of um, assumptions or bring in any specific theories and really listen to, because it's so individual, so individual. Um, anything that's some of the challenges with working in addiction is that there's so many um, assumptions made about how things are and then people don't get heard. So I need to really hear, I mean, I've had some people again that, you know, the reason that you're using is because of stress, but some people like they're not consciously thinking of stress, right? Stress has become so unconscious that that's not what they do, right? So some of it's routine and habit. Some of it is about control, so looking at sort of the, the purposes of using substances really sort of leans back to some people have this desperate need to belong and fit in and have personal connection. And so using socially becomes how they do that. So for some people, being with people is too painful that they need to isolate and pull away. Because people have been so dangerous and unkind (laughs) that being just around people in general is so unsafe. So it really depends on sort of their own personal experiences growing up and over time. See, what I'm learning from all you wonderful guests on on the show, what I'm learning is that I, I used to think that shame came from some big hurt, some big trauma some some terrible acute shocking thing and what i'm learning is that that's not the case it could be much more subtle than that in terms of yeah parent not being there or not being there for the child or being there physically but not emotionally there on on an ongoing basis yeah and so not necessarily at did do clients come to you knowing that? Are they able to say, you know, my my mother wasn't ever there for me? Or, you know, often this is very early, early on, and they don't necessarily remember it. So do you have to go back there? Not necessarily. 
um, I know for some people, they're, they come in and they, they do have, they have greater self-awareness. And that's part of what I want to know, right? People do a lot of work before they seek out therapy, right? There's all kinds of ways people have tried to change and explore and, you know, fix things. So those things are really important to understand, right? I don't need to reteach or re-go to those places. I go where they're at and help them find the next piece, So for some people, they're very aware. I've had some people in jail that it's like, okay, I've done this over and over again. If I don't deal with my trauma, what happened to me growing up with my alcoholic father, I'm never going to get clean. And I have other people come in. It's like, I have no idea why I keep doing this. They've got absolutely zero understanding of the patterns because they're at the very beginning of looking. Oh, okay. Yeah. So different stages of sort of progress and healing. I just love that image. I've got this image of this person in the prison system and they and they get this awakening of saying it I just you know, I can't keep doing this. I've yeah. got to get I've got to deal with I've got to go through that dark tunnel. Yeah. In order to be different, in order yeah. to live the rest of my life. That must be an amazing amazing journey for those folks that you 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 what a privilege to see as they begin that journey of wanting to be different not necessarily knowing how but wanting yeah. it and for some people to even realize that it's possible i think that is like, mm. like that's the light ultimately right when many times again the darkness really is that people have given up this is just the way it is and i know it was like that for me right this is just the way it is. It's just going to be like this forever. It's hopeless. I'm never going to change. Nothing's ever going to be good. And that's just the way it is. Right? So not a sense of I'm, I need to die, but I'm not ever going to live. And how do you give them hope when they're in that state? How do you shed that light? So for me, usually when people have come to me, they haven't really given up. <laughs> so like that's why they're there. That's why they're there. Yeah. <laughs> and so they might still have these ideas that it's hopeless, but there's a very small part of them that's their own light, right? That knows it's possible. They just haven't had a lot of experience with it and so don't trust it. So they have their own tiny little light shining yes always Mm, that's beautiful and so your your work is to make that light bigger yeah so part of that is I shine my light right I love the the poem by Marianne Williamson right is when I have my own light I give permission to others to shine theirs right it's the poem is more than that but that's really so I use my light, I have hope, I trust, I know it's possible, right? I also know it's very hard work. And I'm pretty honest with most of my clients around that too, that this isn't easy. It's not a quick fix. It's not something that's going to be changed overnight, right? It didn't develop overnight. It's not going to change overnight. And yet if they're committed and they really want it, it is absolutely possible. So when I hold that hope, it's like I can let them borrow it. They don't have to have it yet, but I have it for them. And for, oh, go on. for many people, that is what's missing. 
people don't believe in them anymore. People have given up on them. You know, people have had to step away from them. People have shamed them, right? So to really have space where they can build hope, even if they don't have it fully, that becomes the work. So that's the starting point, yeah. is it? Yeah. Giving them hope, giving them a glimpse. And it's not always, yeah. Possible. And it's not always me giving it to them. I'm listening for what brought them in and what have they tried already. Like I build up the fact that they've already done. I'm going to focus on the positives that they've used. I'm going to focus on the changes they've already made. I I had one client that came in and so he had relapsed. So he's back in counseling and he had eight months clean and free from opiates, right? That's significant. (laughs) And he's like, I thought so too, but nobody else did. Yeah, You know, so just highlighting these positive things that most other people don't see because of all the negative stuff that's glaring. It must be such an amazing experience to be with a therapist that is not like yourself, that's not judging, that's not, um, yeah, that's just accepting them and Mm -hmm. appreciating them for having eight months clean as opposed to only eight months Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that is the lens in which you see it, right? Are you looking for what's wrong? Are you looking for what's right? Mm. So I know there's stuff that's right in there. I believe in that absolutely. And so I look for that and I give it back to clients. And sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy because they don't they don't see it that way. They, that's a called a disconfirming experience, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I didn't expect that from you. That's, I have. That's yep. not what normally happens when I say and do these things. Yes. Yeah. And that's what they say. I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure I believe that. But there's there's something that does, right? There's something that really resonates mm. with recognizing them as human beings, right? Seeing the efforts that they've made already. But how do they go back? to the judging family members who are, you know, <laughs> giving up on them and, you know, just don't want to have anything to do with them? Well, some don't. I think that's kind of part of the, the pain and the healing process too, right, is, is it really does take that internal strength to heal sometimes before you repair relationships, right? So the if you have your own, this is part of it, right, is you have your own judgments and your own shame. So anyone else does it to you, it's not that they're doing it to you. It's that it, it hits or matches your own. So if I can be okay with me, then I can be with other people who weren't okay with me. If I can be okay with me, I can be okay with people who aren't okay with me. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's how, how how am I with me? How do I take care of me? How do I be compassionate with me? So whether you are someone who's suffering from addiction or a family member, right? How do you be okay with you no matter what anybody else is doing? So I've got this vision of somebody walking back into the kitchen of the of the home having not been there for I don't know, years, several years. Yeah. And just being Grounded in who they are, accepting yes. of who they are. Yes. And so that changes, that could possibly change the family members. Not not by behavior, but just by the way they're reacting. Yeah. Yeah. 
they don't fall back into the same dynamics, right? And it's not always that easy to do. And But part of it is, is that one person can change. One person can be significant in changing a system. And so for some families, that's easier than others, depending on... on on many factors, I'm sure. Yeah, so some of it really is how receptive is the family to opening up again? How receptive is the family to changing their own judgments, right? Mm-hmm. How receptive is the family to repairing some of those hurts and f- possibly even forgiving, right? But it requires process and building trust again, right? So you're working at a deep level of, of, of the initial, you've just said, of the initial trauma sometimes, uh, the shame around whatever it is. So you're, you're, doing, you're going deep, you're diving deep. You're not just looking at the tip of the iceberg, if you like, the, the, the behaviors. Can you, can you speak more to that? Yeah. I know a lot of the typical treatments for addiction over the last 20, 30 years has been behavioral therapies, right? So looking at all the different ways to um, reduce use, cut back on use, um, stop use. So it's been very much an abstinence focus, um, very much a behavioral focus, looking at how do we stop. So looking at triggers, managing triggers, relapse prevention, all that kind of stuff, right? So with all the most recent, probably in the last, you know, 20 years as well, research on trauma, right, really understanding the effects of trauma and early childhood experiences. When we look at the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, really looking at the impact of those early environment negative experiences, right? So it's not always the big, huge traumas. It certainly is those but it, it is about living in family with chronic stress, right? Not, not even that parents are intentionally harming children, but when they're stressed out, that anxiety has an effect on children, right? When they're working two jobs and trying to manage poverty, right? They aren't mm-hmm. available and present for children. So there's lots of ways in which that impacts the child's ability and their self-concept, right? Right. To take care of themselves and understand how to deal with life, and it could be. I'm just thinking of uh, of uh, adult, the parent being very ill in, mm-hmm. uh, as a ch- early on, even yeah. depression when they're not. Yeah. Able to. So it's not. There's no in, mal intent there. It just no. is just there. Just life. Life yeah. is, can can be yeah. can be stressful, yeah. and so that impacts a child. Yeah. And we look we look at like intergenerational trauma too, right? Just all the stuff that's being passed down that again, we're doing the best we can as parents and yet we're imperfect, right? So sometimes our coping, our inability to be present with our own emotions and other people in relationship, right? It has an effect on the people around us. Mm. So go, so you would work at that level around um, early, early memories or early experiences or, or the or what goes on for them it's inside of the person or do you go back to the history not always 
So it depends for some people about really what they come in with. Some people come in with, I know this is a problem. Let's go there and figure this out. And other people are like, I have no idea. So it really becomes this exploration of not just their past. For some people that like they're terrified to go there. If clients just say, I don't want to go there, right? I don't need to know where there is. Clearly, it's scary enough. They don't want to go there. So we don't go there. So we look at today, how is what's happened in the past affecting them today? So it's present moment symptoms, which again are usually about how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with relationships? How do you deal with emotions? I, I had one, uh, one of my young teens say to me, I have a hole in my heart. Yeah. As you know, she's been basically abandoned by both both parents and yeah. been brought up by other family members. But she can she can she can feel it yeah. in her body yeah. that she has this. In other words, I, there's part of me that's missing. Yeah. And if 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 I'm not, I my my I've, maybe I'm taking this on, but I feel a responsibility to help her heal that hole before it gets filled with addictive behaviors. Well, that's <laughs> part of it. So early intervention, right, is mm-hmm. when we look at the causes, not that they're direct causes, but the sort of things that we know are risk factors for addiction, if we can resolve some of those things, people don't have to turn to substances because they've found other ways to deal with stress, to self-soothe, to manage their emotions, to be okay with themselves. That's the healing work. So I can do that without going back to their past. I can do that in the present moment. Okay, so that's good for folks to hear that Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily have to go to the really deep painful stuff that you can access that in a different way because that's very scary for some folks yeah and so going back to the memories of it aren't always available and yet when we when we look at for most people it's like they experience it in the room with me even if they don't know what it is so there's a cognitive element to it that is not necessary to put the pieces together if that makes sense Mm. but there's a body experience that is where the healing takes place i'm hearing that from a number of our our guests my guests on the show that it's really it's the body that's telling us it has a lot of information and if we can listen to that body yeah how do you do that i I mean my previous (laughs) guest talks about yoga but what, what what about you so I know for some people, it's just being able to, so for some people, I'm just thinking of the most recent client, right, is just, um, I'm feeling really uncomfortable right now. So she's been able to verbalize with me when, you know, we're touching into some topics or experiences that get over the top in terms of discomfort. And so my first question is, where do you feel it in your body, right? So it's just that connection to emotion, sensation, and the body experience. And by bringing attention to it, instead of what typically happens is avoidance, right? So substances are about avoidance. So it's being able to just lean in a little bit and then listening to the body's wisdom, right? What is that? pain in your chest telling you right what is that tension in your jaw telling you what does it need right now it's like having conversations with the body listening to the messages the sensations of your body give you but also being able to then tend to 
what the body needs in the moment. That's beautiful. Uh, is that is that something that all people can do, or is that because they have been shut down? Is that something that they can access? Sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. they need help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, there's activities and things you can do. There's walking meditations, yoga, um, breathing. So there's a bunch of different self-soothing, grounding exercises. There's things you can do on your own to bring you in touch with that. And yet for some people, doing some of those activities without support can be really overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes you can do it on your own. Sometimes you need help. So I know for me, I did it in the sense of therapy initially, and then I can do it by myself. We don't have very much, we don't have much longer, (laughs) Teresa. So I I want to just, um, I just want you to maybe give the listeners a little, any more advice around, you talked about compassion before the break, self-compassion. Is there anything else that that they can take away and, 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 you know, practically use for them for themselves or for the family members i think for for everybody it really is about being able to really pay attention to your own experience right so listening to are you frustrated are you scared are you angry what's going on where are the judgments right can you soften some of the judgments on you and on other people and really understand that we're all human and that people are struggling if we have compassion for the struggle right? Then we can listen a little bit more deeply to what's going on. And then it becomes about how can I help, right? Whether it's yourself or other people, what do I need? Asking others, what do you need? How can I help? Instead of we're so big on being able to give advice with the judgments, you really should be doing all this. And sometimes it doesn't fit for people. So really honoring the human experience and recognizing that people need to have choice in what they do and how they heal. That's not an easy task to take on for some family members because of the no. hurt. No, but then that becomes the work. How do you work through the hurt? Mm-hmm. How do you heal from your own hurt? And in some cases, to take, to make set clear boundaries yeah. around. And that may be how we take care of the hurt. I protect myself. Yeah. It sounds like what you're talking about is an open heart. Yes, but not wide open that people stomp on it. <laughs> right. It's a protected heart, but it's still open. Yeah, the barriers aren't up, but there is some there is some sense yeah. of this is where this is how far I can go. Yes. So Wonderful. recognizing limits, yeah. Healthy boundaries. Yeah. Teresa, this has been really, really wonderful to, to talk about addiction and shame because that's really where where it's a it's a tangible manifestation of shame. Yeah. I mean, there's others. We've talked on other, other shows about this, but this has really, really been helpful. And so thank you so much. You're very uh, welcome. And so thanks for listening in to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. You've been listening today to Teresa McLennan talking about addiction, shame, trauma, pain, and suffering. Tune in next week to listen to more about Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. Thank you for listening this week to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side with Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Please join us for another edition of the program next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.